So, um, January 9th, 1972, defined the first 33 years of my life. That was the day my dad died. I was six and a half years old. And I can honestly say that for the first 33 years that defined most everything I did, there was this sense of urgency that I lived with, this sense of challenge that I felt. In fact, when I turned 33, my two children that I had at the time were exactly the same age that my sister and I were when my father passed away. There were ironies about it, but there was an urgency that it brought to life. Uh, there was a way that I lived because of that. You know, I think I learned it from him. A man who knew that he was dying taught me how to live. But I can tell you now, some years later, that I am not driven by that same vigilance anymore. Uh, I've, I've lived almost... Twice as long as my father. Well, I've got nine years to go for that. But you know what I'm saying? All of a sudden, the edge that I once felt about this no longer drives me. It no longer is as important to me. It, it doesn't always do all the things that it did before. I mean, I look at the journals that I wrote for years and years to give to my sons in case I died. And I don't journal as much as I did before. I look at all the things I wrote in my Bible so that they would have notes from me. And I don't do that as much anymore. Because all of a sudden, the urgency doesn't seem as great in that situation. This week has been a little bit of a wake-up call for Lake Placid. Because once again, we realize that COVID is real. It, it, it's, it's on our doorstep. And we still have to deal with it. And once again, all of a sudden, people, thinking about washing their hands a little bit more often. Um, they're being a little more vigilant in how they wear their mask. There are certain things that for some reason they, they touch our lives in such a way that they, they cause us to live with a greater sense of urgency. They, they, they create a, a driven lifestyle somehow. But then there are other moments when we aren't that way. I've been quoting him a lot lately because I've enjoyed reading him. A.W. Tozer, in 1960, said that one of the other things that he was concerned about in the church is that they don't live with the hope of the second coming very well anymore. They were so caught up in living their lives and in pursuing their dreams here that they were overlooking this bigger dream that God had for them. Uh, when I was a young man, I prayed that Jesus Christ wouldn't come until I got married because I really wanted to be married. And I think that on our bad days, when things aren't going well, all of a sudden we go, yeah, I wish Jesus would come. And the reason we hope for Jesus to come is just because it's a bad day. And yet, Jesus Christ and his return is a big deal. And that's what really the focus of Matthew chapter 24 is. And one of the things that I didn't understand until I studied it more is that it's anchored in historical fact. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but John, uh, Matthew chapter 24 is anchored in historical fact. 
the red letters that Jesus says in John, in Matthew, boy, I'm thinking John for some reason, in Matthew chapter 24 are anchored in historical fact, and we'll take a look at that today. It all started with a discussion because you see Herod the Great had refurbished the temple, and it looked better than it ever did before. And they were quite impressed with their temple. And they enjoyed it. And the disciples, as they were going out, they enjoyed the building. And, but Jesus Christ answered them and told them something about the building. He said, you see all this, don't you? I truly, I tell you, there will be not be one, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that has not been thrown down. You know, one of the things that Damon told me when I first came here, and it was devastating to me to think about, he told me that part of the, the, the reality of forever wild in this area is, is when land becomes forever wild, whatever buildings were on that land, no matter what great camp they were, or uh, what historical value they might have, or what enjoyment they might give, they need to be mowed over. They need to be destroyed. And me as a person who loves architecture and building and, and the unique woodworking that would be a part of the Adirondack style, that just broke my heart to think that they would do that. So all of a sudden, I started thinking about this. In fact, that here you have these men that love the temple, and Jesus Christ is saying it's going to be destroyed. The main reason it was going to be destroyed is because it wasn't needed anymore. Jesus Christ was going to die on the cross and become the perfect sacrifice. And in becoming that perfect sacrifice, all of a sudden it wouldn't be needed anymore. Temple worship would be over. We would move from the Passover to the Last Supper, right? To the Lord's Supper. But Jesus Christ did something very interesting. Jesus Christ began explaining in detail what was going to happen and he gave it as a warning to protect them. Because I think it's very interesting. You see, Christianity, at its beginning, was mainly in Jerusalem. That's where the disciples were. That's where it began growing. That's where the main church was. Everything was driven by this, this Jerusalem thing. And Jesus Christ, as he explains the destruction of the temple, he is also giving a warning and creating protection for the baby church. He's telling them what's going to take place. When Jesus said this, of course, the disciples had questions they asked too. They said, tell us, when will these things be? You're talking about the destruction of the temple. When will that be? And then the second question is, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Okay, we want to know what's going on because you've talked about the fact that you're leaving, but that you're coming back, and so we want details. We want an itinerary. All of us understand this, don't you? They're not doing anything different than a child sitting in a car going, are we there yet? And little by little, we begin giving them signposts. We don't say, well, not until we see the big green building are we going to be there. You know, that's always really close to Grandma's house. And there's all these details that go along with that. And so he begins giving the details. 
So the first question as we continue in, in Matthew chapter 24 is, when will the destruction of the temple take place? And in verses 15 through 35-ish, and I say that because there's crossover and Jesus Christ doesn't feel the need to be completely linear or just talk about one topic and then move on to the next. Jesus Christ begins explaining this. It starts in verse 15 where he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet of Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now this idea comes from Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, and it also comes from experiences that they've already had. There was a Greek ruler that at one point took over the temple and they and legend says that he even he took a pig and he sacrificed it on the altar desecrated the altar so they understood what he was talking about so he's saying something's going to happen to the temple something you don't like and that happened in AD 70 in AD 70 because of the war that the Jewish people began with the Romans in 66 the temple was destroyed. And when they destroyed the temple, they completely demolished it because they were so frustrated by these Jewish people that wouldn't kind of just blend in and get along. They wouldn't blend in, they wouldn't get along, and so they destroyed their place of worship and they began scattering them all over. Now God used this point in a very unique way, because his original command to the church was to go into the whole world and share the gospel with every creature. And the way he made that take place is he used this cataclysmic event of the actual destruction of the temple as a way for them to flee. In fact, Jesus Christ gave them a warning and told them, when this takes place, as you've read in the book of Daniel, here's what I want you to do. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He was giving them warning and he was giving them an escape plan. He says, I want you to flee. In fact, he gives details of how they're supposed to flee. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take take what is in his house. And let not the one who is in the field turn back to take his cloak. He's saying, hey, when this happens, you need to be out of there right away. You don't want to be a part of the destruction. You don't want to be a part of the problems that are going to take place. You need to leave immediately. And it goes on and says this, And alas, for the woman who is pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. You're going, well, what's the deal with the Sabbath? Well, you have to understand that in Jewish culture, everything shuts down on the Sabbath. We did not understand that until we happened to be in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day when we were on our uh, tour of Israel. There was nothing open. McDonald's was close. We thought we'd go somewhere. The buses weren't running. You could find a taxi. The trains weren't running. It's like the whole thing shut down, except for in a hotel. Because there was a whole bunch of ascetic Jews that had decided that they were going to hang out there for the Sabbath day. And we learned another thing. 
They changed the elevators on the Sabbath day. Because, see, to touch a button in an elevator is work. So they just make the elevator stop on every floor. There were timers in our room to turn the lights off and on because it's work to turn the light off and on. Jesus Christ is giving them a warning. He's saying that this is what is going to take place. And this is very important for us. Do you know why this is important for us? Because it did take place. And Jesus said in his word, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because Jesus said something and it took place, that keeps his title of being the truth. And that's important, isn't it? You know, there are people right now that are saying that the Word of God can change. Well, that's scary because the Bible tells us about who God is. And it reflects His character. And so if the Bible can change, does that mean God can change today? That means His Word is a lie because Jesus Himself said, I am the same when? Yesterday, today, and forever. You know, I I wasn't going to originally preach this part because I just felt like I would be preaching history except for we stand on history. Jesus Christ, several decades before it took place, told the truth about what's going to happen. He warned His disciples. He protected His little church. He went on and said this, He said, then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world now. No, and never will be. And he's talking about that moment. We always think about the tribulation as that future thing. But this was more tumultuous for the Jewish people and for these believers at this time than any event that had ever taken place in history. You know, yes... They had had the Babylonian captivity and they'd been drugged to another place and they, they'd, they'd gone through the, the exiles and all that. But they didn't go through the destruction and the anger of the Roman Empire. Do you know what the Romans did after they destroyed the temple? They put their flag where the temple used to be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. I wonder how often in history we could write that sentence. But for the sake of God's church, he cut something short. For the sake of the body of Christ, something was cut short. Then he kind of explains to them what's going to take place. He says, when this whole tribulation thing is going on and everything's going on, you're going to hear this. Then if someone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders, and so to lead astray, if possible, even the elect." He said, you know, even at this beginning time, and and every era has seen it, there are people that believe they are the Christ, that they are the Messiah. I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, 
he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Then he goes on and says this, For as lightning comes from the east and shines far as the west, so will be the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord isn't going to be something that can be announced. Now I was thinking about lightning. And when we lived in Florida, there was a lot more lightning than there is here. And occasionally, you know, you've learned the thing, and there was actually more lightning growing up in North Dakota. And they'd say, okay, basically, whenever you see the lightning flash, start counting, and whenever you hear the thunder, that tells you how far away it is. I tell you, in in Florida, a lot of time you would hear both of them at exactly the same time. And it would really freak you out. But you couldn't just know that there was going to be lightning today. Sometimes you'd be just walking around. It seemed like a nice day. It wouldn't even be overly cloudy or anything. And the next thing you know, the coming of Christ is not going to be something that's announced. The coming of Christ isn't going to be something that we have a date for. We're going to read about that today. The coming of Christ is going to be a surprise. Like lightning. He gives this interesting illustration. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And it just basically says, he says, you know, this is just kind of a, a saying they had then that talked about how, how things work. And he's saying, I'm telling you what you're going to see. I'm telling you what the vultures are. So you know that the event is real. And, it, and we need to grab onto this idea that Jesus Christ, even as he was getting ready to be betrayed, was giving prophecy of a new idea that had not really completely existed before. Giving information that they had never really heard before. Telling them a truth that now we can weave through the book of Ezekiel and we can weave through the book of Daniel and we can find little excerpts of here and there. But, but during that time, it wasn't like that. He goes on and says this. In verses 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation, these days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. He's saying this historical event is going to remind you that not only is something happening on earth, but there's something spiritually taking place. God's on the move. Something is taking place. Now there are some that will say that this is all still dealing with the fall of Jerusalem with the war, the Jewish war. But we don't know that that is true. Then there will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And tonight we're going to be reading some of those Scriptures that go along with that. There is a time that Jesus Christ will come back to the earth and He will physically reign on the earth. And this is the second coming of Christ. But before the second coming of Christ, there's something else that will take place. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from the end of the heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. He's saying, saying, you see, the, the, the... 
the return of Jesus Christ, it's going to be a surprise, and there are going to be two parts to it. One party is going to take his church, and another part he's going to come down and reign on this world. Now, to get more information that goes along with this, you have to read in First and Second Thessalonians, where, remember, the Thessalonians didn't get this right. They got really bummed out when people died because they felt like they were going to miss the return of God, the return of Christ. And he says, no, 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 there's a pecking order to the return of Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will follow. He goes by giving this warning. He says, from the, from the fig tree we learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Sometimes we struggle with these verses. People have struggled with these verses. But I think he's specifically talking about all the things that he has said that will take place in the Jewish war and the fall of the temple and the destruction of the temple. All of that will take place in one generation. But remember, God doesn't see time the same way we do. And then he says, basically, when Jerusalem is fall, then the next thing on the list is the return of Christ. And now that's only been 1950 years since the fall of Jerusalem. And so much like me, who is no longer 33 and doesn't feel the urgency that I felt at age 33, because it's been 950 years, there are times that we don't feel the urgency either. But we need to anchor the return of Christ to the prophecy that he made about the activity before he returned. The historical reality of what he spoke of in the destruction of Israel, of Jerusalem and the temple, is incredibly important. It anchors our faith and it moves us forward. So now Jesus Christ is going to specifically answer the second question. What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Now, this is where we want details, don't we? I don't know about you, but I, I look forward to the spring when all of a sudden I can go out up to the lilac and instead of knowing that I'm going to break it off, I can tell that there's a little bit of life in it. There's something about when those first buds come out and you know that winter is over. You know, we're not there yet. So in verse 36, he says something that was probably pretty hard for them to hear. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. You mean we don't know? I tell you what, there are people that think they know there's a lot of prophets saying, oh, this is the time, I know, we know. They don't know. How many of you remember 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come in 1988? I know people whose families actually quit their jobs 
and they stood in circles on that day so they could be raptured together. Must have been a long day and they must have had clammy hands. But we know, know the time. He goes on and he gives a lesson from Noah. As we're in the days of Noah, so will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. It's lightning. The only reason you're going to know he come is because there's going to be a sign that says Jesus has entered the building. But there isn't going to be in three days, in two hours. It's not going to work like that. He goes on and talks a little bit about the rapture and says what it's going to be like at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, there are two events, okay? So if you were to lay out history, the way it works, we're in this age called the church age. The church age will end when Jesus Christ calls the church to himself. There will be a trumpet call, and it says the dead in Christ will raise first, and then we are alive, and there's going to be this all of a sudden this absence. And I've talked to you about the fun we had in college creating rapture drills for people where we'd have the trumpet player play and we'd have the clothes all laid out everywhere except for the one guy on the dorm floor and he'd think that maybe he missed the rapture. But there's going to be this point where God calls the whole church to himself. And I think that it's going to create a crisis. Why is it going to be create a crisis? Because there are going to be two in the field and all of a sudden there will only be one. There'll be two grinding, and all of a sudden, there'll only be one. And all of a sudden, people will disappear. People will be on planes, people will be in cars, people will be riding their scooters, all different kinds of things. Maybe they'll be running the Iron Man. Wouldn't that be bizarre if during the Iron Man, all of a sudden, the rapture happened, and all of a sudden, like uh, two-thirds of the people just disappeared, and there were bikes everywhere? And spandex everywhere, you know? But you can start seeing that, that this would be an interesting experience. This is what he tells us to do. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day the Lord is coming. And this is the hard part. It's hard to stay awake and wait. His disciples struggled with that. They, he, remember the night he was betrayed? He asked them to stay awake, and they kept on falling asleep. Are we any better than them? It's hard to stay awake. It's hard to stay vigilant. It's hard to stay on that edge when it looks like it will never happen. But that's the interesting thing about it is, is we never exactly know. He gives the example of a thief and says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. One day I drove home. We were living in South Florida and I dropped the kids off and made sure they got in the house and shut the door and Tens minutes later, Stephen called up and said, are we in trouble? Why? 
Well, I can't find the game system. I can't even find my Game Boy. Are we in trouble? No. We weren't in trouble. We were robbed. And so all of a sudden, the Caney family's life changed. Several hundred dollars later, we had a pretty nice security system in our home. (laughs) I remember the first time it worked. We were watching a movie on the TV, and a part we had so much, so many. We had like eight sliding glass doors in this house, and so we got a, a, a glass break sensor, and we're watching this movie on television, and I've got the whole surround system going, and there's some kind of battle or something going on, and there are things crashing, and all of a sudden I hear this, Mr. Koenig, Mr. Koenig. And the person from my alarm company was calling me. And I had to explain to him, oh, we're just watching a movie. We're okay. But in the same way it's lightning, it's going to be like a thief in the night. People are going to be surprised. Therefore, you must always be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not no. He gives another example. He gives the example of his servant. He says, who then is faithful and wise servant whose master set him over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whose master will find him doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now how many of you as parents have ever told your kids, I'm going to the store or I'm going to be back and I'll be back at a certain time and I want the dishes done and, and all those kinds of things. And, you know, most of us as children, most of us children didn't think, hey, I'm just going to get those things out of the way. So in case mom and dad come back early, they'll be done. No, we sat and we continued doing whatever we were going to do until we figured it was the last possible moment, right? And we can have that attitude with God instead of just being faithful and doing what we're supposed to do. God wants to bless us and reward us. But the reality is we're probably more like this at time. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, this is a scary thought because what he's describing here is eternal punishment. There are a lot of people out there that have this attitude about Christianity. Some of them know all about it and they say, I'm going to do that someday. Talk to me later. I'm too young to get saved. I'm too busy to get saved. I I, I will get saved when I get around to it. And God's Word challenges us that now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We're not here to shame you. We're here to invite you into the kingdom of God. 
for you to have that personal relationship. You see, Jesus Christ came to earth not just to prophesy about what would happen eventually, but Jesus Christ specifically came to earth because we have a problem that he alone could solve. And that problem is our rebellion and our unwillingness to do what God wants. Even in the simplest things, you ever find it? Somebody, have you ever had somebody tell you what to do and immediately all you can think of is, well, there's three other options for how I could do it. It's hard to live in the word of yes, sir, isn't it? Because something in our nature doesn't want to. But that's why Jesus Christ had to die. It's because that's a rebellion against trusting in God. And it separates us from God. And Jesus Christ came to overcome that separation. The cross is the greatest bridge that has ever existed And if you're willing to let him be your savior, you can cross the bridge of the cross and be in relationship with God. If you haven't done that, that's something that you need to do. I wrote this as a summary about what we're talking about today. The historical reality of the Jewish war and the temple destruction should motivate us to see Christ's return as our return out reality. That we should know that Christ will return, it will be a surprise like lightning or a thief. The world will be oblivious to it, much like the flood of Noah. But if it should motivate us to faithful service, we go back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, that says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And so I say to you, oh drowsy church, <laughs> oh, I say to you, my distracted brothers and sisters, I say to you, those who sometimes are too busy building your kingdom here instead of his kingdom, wake up. Ask God for the help to live with a sense of intentionality to be driven by the reality that he will return he will take us home i look forward to that day don't you beam me up jesus right but he has not yet come and so instead of wondering when it will happen we must live as if it will happen soon and that we as his people must be ready for his return. Let's pray together. You know, if you've not made this decision, my my greatest goal isn't in any way making you afraid. That's not my goal. I don't want to scare you into the kingdom of God. I want you to realize that the shame and guilt and hurt and brokenness that you feel, Jesus can solve. He died because you can't completely forgive yourself and you need him to forgive you. And if you haven't made that decision... I pray that right now you would ask Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior. To forgive your sin. 
and to change you. And then I pray for the rest of us. Maybe we've already made that decision, but we're finding ourselves just a little sleepy, a little bit drowsy, a little bit distracted. And I pray, God, on this day, that you would build into us the urgency of your return. And that it would drive us. Most of us do better with God deadlines, God. We get more done. And so I pray that we would, out of the confidence of the detail of what you spoke of that was unfathomable to the Jewish man, that you would destroy the temple and the specific directions and details you gave around that event, that that truth would motivate how we live our everyday life. And we would feel a great sense of urgency knowing that in your timing, you're returning very soon. Even though in our timing, it might seem like we have a little longer time. And so, God, we long to be in your presence, to celebrate in your kingdom. But as we're not home yet, God, help us in the vigilance we need to live our everyday life. To not be surprised as the people of Noah's time, but to look for that flash of lightning, that sound of the trumpet that call to be home with you. Lord, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I am looking forward to an evening of worship, and I hope to see you all there. Thank you for being here today, and may the fact that Jesus Christ is the truth the prophet that we can trust, encourage you and grow you in your everyday trust of him. And may he find you awake and at work in his kingdom. God bless you as you go.